0: Okay, um, I have a ton to get through today. I'm going to try and get through as much as I can, so let's go ahead and pray. You'll see that um, I pretty much in the handout go all the way through um, the, pre, uh, the um, ancient church era. I don't know if we'll get through all that, but I'm going to try and get through as much as I can. Um, my goal is to definitely get through at least the um, uh, Nicene stuff, Okay, which is really important and really um, uh, really cool stuff. So let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Lord God, thank you so much again for another Sunday, for another day of rest, and I just um, thank you that we could all make it here. I know sometimes getting to church is just a, a crazy um, endeavor with kids and and all the stuff that, that goes on in our lives, and so we thank you that we're here, and we pray that we would just um, worship you in spirit and in truth today, that you would just cause us to draw close to you through the teaching, through the worship, through the sermon, through the fellowship. Um, we just thank you so much, God, for your church for your body, for all that it does for us, for all that it gives to us. Um, In spite of all of its um, warts and mistakes, um, we are a part of that body, and we're so grateful for that. And I pray, God, that we would just be strengthened and inspired and edified as we go over the history of your body um, uh, from the time that you came to this earth. And we just thank you so much, God, for all you give us. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so I'm going to wrap up Gnosticism uh, fairly quickly. If you guys remember from last week, just a real quick um, overview, Um, they believed, similar to ancient Greek philosophy, that you had this sort of dualistic reality. So you have two spheres that are kind of both eternal and both sort of exist alongside of each other. And a lot of Greeks believed they were almost kind of equally powerful. Now... This is very broad brush strokes as far as what ancient Greeks believed. Okay? Different ones applied it differently to their particular philosophy, um, you know, uh, to their different um, religion and polytheism and stuff like this, but this was the sort of reigning overarching uh, paradigm. I compared it last week a little bit to evolution in our, in our culture. Evolution is applied to um, different philosophies, religions, worldviews in different ways, but it sort of tends to be sort of this overarching, reigning explanatory paradigm in our culture right now. And that's sort of how this Greek philosophy worked of dualism, okay? So Gnosticism took that and tried to blend it with Christianity, and as I hope you guys are seeing, it doesn't work, okay? They had to really make a mess of scripture, alright? So, but basically they called these two spheres, okay, the pleroma um, which is the spirit sphere, and that's the good. And then you have the Kenoma, which is the physical sphere, which is bad. Okay? And then within the Pleroma, you have the one at the top, okay? and that is like God, or they had different names for it, the abyss, different types of things. Um, and from this highest level of being come all these different aeons. Okay? There's emanations, which lead to the aeons, and each one is lower in power and goodness and purity, so on and so forth. Okay? And within Gnosticism, at the very bottom, you get Sophia. Now, in traditional Greek thought, Sophia was a good thing. It was representative of wisdom. In Gnosticism, they take a little different turn on that. Okay? And they say that Sophia um, was, was very kind of human-like, almost. Not like physical, but very much had a mind, a will. Okay? And she kind of lost her way a little bit because she sewed down below on the totem pole. All right? And she fell in love, so to speak. Okay? And again, I'm being very broad here there was many different strands of Gnosticism. They had all different kinds of weird doctrines, some kind of broad brushstrokes about what most Gnostics believe. But in some sense of the word, she kind of reached out for the, the one or the abyss, and that led to this spark of light, okay, that came over to the Kenoma, which led to the Demiurge, and then he organized all this physical matter, sort of creating the world, but again, not creating it ex nihilo. That idea was very much uh, anathema to Greek thought, um, and so many Gnostics, not all, many Gnostics had a different spin on things, but many Gnostics equated this Demiurge with the God of the Old Testament, okay? So that he was bad um, or to, um, at the very least, was misguided, okay? The father in Gnosticism is over here, the father of the New Testament, I should say, okay? And he is very much seen as different than the Demiurge, okay? And then down here you have um, the Christ, okay? Um, Not technically, I think last week I might have called him Jesus, I might have been going a little too fast. Better to say the Christ, and we'll talk about his relationship with Jesus in a minute, okay? You kind of have this Christ figure, and then you have the Holy Spirit, and then below that you get all these other different aeons, okay? Now, the goal of um, Christ is to save us, okay, from matter, okay? To save us from evil matter, all right? In a lot of Greek thought, not just in Gnosticism, the goal was for your soul to be liberated from your what, from your body. Okay, very different from Christianity, where God liberates both our souls and our bodies, and our bodies will be resurrected at the end of time. Very different paradigm. Okay, Um, but that was sort of seen as 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 what what Christ came to do was to save us from this physical realm. Okay, and how did He save us? Not through the work of the cross. Not through, you know, uh, uh, preaching the gospel and, and through his work of, of suffering and his righteousness. He did it through what? Does anyone know? It's where Gnosticism gets its name. Knowledge. Very good. Okay. All right. The word gnosis in Greek just means knowledge. And there's actually, a, unlike in English, there's actually a number of different words for knowledge. I'm not going to get totally into that. Again, as I said, I'm going to try not to get into too much theology in this class. But basically... This meant um, very much kind of an intellectual, heady uh, uh, knowledge, and that was seen as the way that you were saved. And it was a special, esoteric, sort of secret knowledge that was only available through the Christ. Does that make sense? All right. And they largely interpreted the Bible as sort of a large what? Does anybody know? Not straightforward hermeneutics, but largely as a kind of what type of book? Who said that? Excellent. Fantastic. Largely, the Bible was a coded book. So they would take just about anything, all right, and they would say the real meaning, the meaning behind the meaning, is this. And the only way you could get to that meaning, uh, meaning was through Gnosticism, and they said that that meaning came from the Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, so. You can take just about anything—a parable, a story, an epistle, the the descriptions of Christ's suffering themselves—and it all gets spun in sort of this Gnostic direction, all right? But Gnostics were very, very careful to say, and this is what was very confusing to a lot of people. They always said, "Oh, well, we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible." Most Gnostics actually said, "We believe the Bible from start to finish. It is the Word of God, all right." So we're not rejecting the Christian scriptures. But we're just helping you to have a deeper, better meaning. Does that make sense? And that was the way that you got saved. All right. Now there were three different types of people within uh, Gnostic theology. Okay, there was Hylics. Okay, there was um, psychics, and there was pneumatics. Does anyone know who the Hylics were? Any guesses? Okay, sort of just your average Joe unbeliever, okay? Pretty much pagans um, or other religions, so on and so forth, okay? And they were pretty much doomed, all right, to be bound to their body or the kenome or the physical realm in some sense of the word forever, okay? Highli- uh, Psychics, excuse me, were other professing Christians. Now, there were other heretical groups and the Gnostics mostly just sort of blended them all into one big group. Does that make sense? But most of the people within that group were Orthodox Christians, okay? And they said that, you know, you could maybe be saved, sort of, you were kind of in this middle ground, all right? They said, you're not like a hylic or right? you had some gnosis, but you were being hindered because you had an overly literal reading of scripture. Sound familiar? Okay, how many times have we heard that in church history? It's very common today. Oh, you literal, you literalists, okay? Um, Gnostics very much accuse Orthodox Christians of, of being the literalists of their day, Okay. Now, the pneumatics, okay, were people who were actually, okay, in the know. They were fully-fledged Gnostics. They were on the path of salvation, okay? What about the Christ do you think gave them a lot of problems, a lot of issues? Incarnation, okay, yeah, all right? He cannot be overly joined with the physical. And there was not one single answer to that within Gnosticism. I'm not going to go into all the different... Shades of how they tried to answer that, that question. But some Gnostics basically said that the Christ sort of came upon the human person Jesus. That the human person Jesus was this really um, great man... Um, with uh, it was you know it was very holy and righteous and the Christ sort of came upon him gave him the gnosis so he could preach it to others and they had this very close relationship but it was not a true union it was not two natures in one person all right does anyone know when most of the Gnostics said that the Christ came upon the human Jesus can you say that a little louder very good okay at his baptism okay and they'll say you know when it talks about the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the, the psychics are taking that a little too literally. What that's talking about is the Christ, the dynamic Christ figure, okay, from heaven or the, the Pleroma, came upon the human nature, or the human uh, person, excuse me, of, of Jesus, and helped him to do his ministry. And when did he leave him? When did the Christ leave the human uh, person of Jesus? Okay, yeah, during his sufferings, okay? Can you see how just diametrically opposed this is to biblical Christianity? All right, that that, that God did not really come, okay, to do his work of salvation uh, for us. Okay, he sort of left uh, Jesus sort of on his own. Um, One of the more popular views, um, and then I'll I'll get your question. I just saw your hand go up. Um, What's that? And and it shouldn't make sense. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And again, but any time Christians would quote the Bible... It was very difficult to argue with them because what would they say? I know what it says. I've read that. I get those words, but that's not the real what. It's not the real meaning. And so they'd go behind it. So yeah, exactly. I totally see what you're saying. And Christians would get very frustrated. I'm going to talk about some church fathers who sometimes could be a little harsh towards the Gnostics. But if you really understand Gnosticism, sometimes, you know, uh, you know I, 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 I debate with people online. And sometimes I'm like having to restrain myself, okay? Because, you know, when people are saying things that are really crazy and ridiculous... It's tough, and, that, and that, it's, this, this didn't make sense, it shouldn't make sense, okay? One of the more popular views, though, was what was known as uh, the docetic view. Now, a lot of people mistakenly um, uh, equate uh, docetism with Gnosticism, that's not correct. Docetism was a subgroup within Gnosticism, but it was one of the larger ones. Some would actually even say it was the majority group, okay? And they would actually say there was no human person of Jesus at all, okay? That the, the, the dynamic Christ came to earth and it's simply what, that there was a Jesus. Does anyone know? Where, what does the word uh, docetic come from? Does anyone know? What's that? Seem. Thank you. Okay. It comes from the word dokeo, which means to appear or seem. And the, the docetists had this famous um, parable or analogy. They would say that when the apostles would walk with Jesus, if, um, uh, you know, who was usually at the head of the apostles in the early church? Think about it. Peter, okay, so they'd say Jesus and Peter were walking along on the beach and they were having their very good conversations and the other apostles were behind them. They said, if you looked down at the floor, what would you see? One set of footprints. You'd see Peter's footprints, but not Jesus's because he wasn't actually physical. He only appeared to be physical. And again, if he's not physical, did he actually physically die on the cross? No, okay, so there is no atonement in Gnosticism. They found the entire view of of atonement to be repugnant, Okay, something you'll, you'll hear very commonly today uh, amongst liberal theologians. They'll say the entire idea of God, you know, killing his son is just, is just blah. you know what I mean? Uh, but again, we have to understand that is what the Bible clearly says, okay? All right, yes, you had a question? Where would the ascension then? if Christ left, uh, left his body at, at, uh, on the cross? Different Gnostics had different interpretations of that, but again... Always remember that the literal, or the, I don't want to, you know, say that as Christians we shouldn't always be overly literal, you know what I mean? Because some people can take that too far, and like take every verse in Revelation literally, and it leads to weird interpretations. But a straightforward interpretation of the Bible really didn't matter to the Gnostics that much. So it didn't really, it, it, it wasn't about squaring the ascension, it was about going to the deeper meaning of the story. And sometimes the Gnostics would have just bizarre meanings behind the, the, the meaning, okay? And again, as I said last week, this sounds so crazy to us, it's so different, it's so antithetical to biblical Christianity, but this was a big challenge in the early church because most pagans would say, you know, I don't like any form of Christianity, you guys are all bad and you're all messed up, but if I were to even open, my, my if I were to even be willing to be open-minded about this at all, the only group I'd be open to is who? Gnostics, because they said they at least sound like they know what they're talking about. <laughs> I know that sounds so crazy to us today, but again, it shows you how much the reigning paradigm in any culture is very difficult for people to get past. Okay, When you've been taught a paradigm from a very young age, that's what makes sense to you, whether it actually makes a lot of logical sense or not. Okay. All right, so um, this was uh, Gnosticism kind of in, in a nutshell. Let's kind of move on to some of the other ones. I'm going to go quickly because I do want to get spend a lot of time on the um, uh, Arian controversy, okay? <clears throat> um, next uh, heretical group I'm going to talk about really quick is Marcionism. I uh, could say a lot about this, but just for the sake of time, I'm going to be fairly very, very quick. Is Marcion had some similarities to the Gnostics, but he felt that the Gnostics, yeah, definitely meaning behind the meaning and all this stuff, he said, this just doesn't make any sense, okay? And all these aeons and hyalics and psychics and Sophia falling in love to the, to Marcy. And He he rightfully, okay, he wasn't right on a lot of things, but he was rightfully said, this is all, doesn't make a lot of sense, okay? But what he did agree with, okay, is he said that the God of the Old Testament is very, very what? Evil, bad, okay? Harsh, mean, barbaric, whatever words you can think of, Don't follow that God, okay? And he said that what Jesus came to do is to save us from our sin, but also, in a sense, to save us from the evil God of the Old Testament, okay? The Father, the good God, sent Jesus to save us from the bad God, the evil God of the Old Testament, okay? So what Marcion did, and he was, what made him so radical, and he actually wasn't, didn't have a very large following. He had a following in Rome, but nothing as broad as Gnosticism. Um, But what made him so different is he was the first kind of major heretic to come along and say, I'm a professing Christian, and you don't have to accept the Christian scriptures. Does that make sense? Okay, and that's why not a lot of people took him seriously. I'm going to say in a minute why he was still important, okay, and how God used Marcion, but most people dismissed him because most people, sort of like today, if you want to call yourself a Muslim, and you turn around and say, but I don't believe the Quran. How many people in this world are going to take you very seriously? Not many. Everyone just knows, historically, the two are, are inextricably linked. If you want to say that you're a Mormon, but you don't believe in the Book of Mormon, people are going to scratch their heads. Okay? It was the same thing with Marcion. Even people who didn't like Christianity were like, what? What? This guy's coming along, he doesn't even believe in the Christian book. All right? Now again, the, the canon was not fully put together. It wasn't like you know, we had like you know, bounded Bibles like this. All right. But people had a pretty overarching solid idea of what the Christian scriptures were. Whether you believed in them or not, or whether you interpreted them like the Gnostics, or in a straightforward manner like Orthodox Christians, um, uh, everyone un- sort of understood what the Christian uh, um, literature was. Okay. Um, Marcion basically said, scrap all the Old Testament, all right? And in the New Testament, only the Epistles of Paul and the Gospel of Luke. Everything else is tainted by Old Testament theology. And even then, he took a lot of passages out of the Epistles of Paul and a lot of passages out of the Gospel of Luke because he said those had been inserted later all right, by people who were tainted by Old Testament theology. Okay? And as is the case oftentimes with, with heretical leaders, what was always the test for what belonged and what didn't belong? Yeah, exactly. It was never any kind of historical analysis or anything like that. It was, if Marcion said it sounded, you know, right on, okay, then it belonged there. If Marcion said it sounded too much like the Old Testament, then you got to get it out, all right? Um, And so basically had this sort of gutted canon, um, uh, and not a lot of people took him seriously. Real quickly, the way God used this, though, it was the first time that the church said, we really need to start taking um, the question of the canon seriously, all right? There were certain books of the Bible, okay, most notably like Revelation Hebrews, as, as Pastor talked about. He's re- preaching on it. There were certain books that people were just not rejecting, not saying those are evil or anything like that, but we're just not 100% sure they were inspired by the Spirit. And there were other books that we don't put in the canon today that some people thought uh, that should belong there, all right? And a lot of times you'll see on like, you know, TV shows that are trying to, you know, say that Christianity has been chaos from the beginning, they'll say, you know, and they couldn't decide on any of these books, and it was just, you know, and then the Council of Nicaea came along, and they sort of just said, these are the books, and we're done. That's just not how it happened, like, at all. That's just historical revisionism. It's nonsense, all right? the books that were people thought should belong were good books for the most part. They were orthodox, all right? They had some issues, they had some problems, they had some passages that would probably make us cringe a little bit today. But for the most part, they were good books. It's not like orthodox Christians were advocating Gnostic books or heretical works. Does that make sense? It would sort of be like, maybe like a brand new Christian thinking that Calvin's institutes belong in the canon. Obviously, we would correct that pretty quickly. But again, we're not talking about something that's like way off the radar screen. Does that make sense? Okay, books like The Shepherd of Hermas Books like that that are overall orthodox, good, godly works. All right? For the most part, the early church all right, tended to be so focused on the what that they didn't focus enough on the question of the canon or maybe theology as much as they should have. What was the early, early church sort of like anticipating in a very, very real way? Jesus' return, okay? And obviously we should all have that anticipation, but sometimes they took that too far where they didn't always obey all the commandments of God because there was sort of this sense of like, I don't need to do certain things because it doesn't matter, Jesus is going to come back tomorrow, which is not a balanced view of things. And eventually the church sort of matured and said, Look, we always want to be in anticipation of Christ's return. But you know, we're starting to learn that might not be right away. All right. And Peter talks about that, okay, in Second Peter, okay, how there's going to be people who will scoff. Um, and say, you know, when is he coming back, so on and so forth. And and the early church started to realize that a little bit more, okay? Mm -hmm. So, from about that period of time, from um, about, uh, you know, kind of the um, uh, uh, mid-second century, all right, all the way up until the Nicene uh, uh, Creed, the church is starting to debate um, strongly, vigorously, which books of of the debated books belong and which don't. And it was not something that was decided overnight, okay? It really, not until about the Nicene uh, Creed time, did the church really kind of come uh, to a solid conclusion on the New Testament? But at least Marcion got people being a little bit more vigorous about being more proactive about trying to understand uh, the question of the debated books. Does that make sense? Remember last week I talked about heresy is always a big problem, but God always uses it to sharpen uh, and help uh, the church define things. Okay. All right, next real quick, adoptionism. Also not a huge uh, movement on the level of Gnosticism, but it was around and did ca- cause some problems. Okay? This group basically said, okay, that God adopted Jesus, okay, and sometimes they kind of took a little bit of Gnostic view of things, not on most things. They said that when at Jesus' baptism, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, that the Christ came upon the human Jesus and adopted him as his son, all right? Obviously... Much more orthodox in most ways than Gnosticism, but clearly that is not a uh, a biblical uh, position, okay? And basically the human nature of Christ is never fully united uh, to the divine nature. And they were not always very clear as to what exactly they meant by this dynamic Christ figure thing, okay? All right, the next one, I'm not gonna say a lot about these because I went over these a lot in my Trinity class. You can review those. But these were two heresies that came along that also caused some problems. One would be modalism, that's basically just the belief that there's one God, okay, who exists in one person. The Father is the Son, the Father is the Spirit, the Son is the Spirit. Okay, so when the three persons of the Trinity constantly in the New Testament interact with each other, they have to really stretch uh, those passages and try and explain them away. Okay? Not completely identical, but very similar to oneness Pentecostalism uh, of today. All right? The next one would be tritheism. This was a belief that God exists in three parts, okay? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit sort of collectively make up the one God, okay? Well, obviously, the Bible does not say that uh, Jesus is a third of God or part of God. The Bible says that he is God, okay? Um, But again, both of those, all three of those movements, adoptionism, modalism, and tritheism, really helped the church to get more serious about trying to understand the Trinity better. Remember I said last week, the Trinity was always there, but it was fuzzy. There was this sense of we believe in one God, We worship the Father, we worship the Son, we worship the Holy Spirit, and we know they're distinct in some way, but past that, the church was like really kind of nervous about overly defining things. Does that make sense? They saw that as so mysterious, and they saw it as seen as such an advancement from Old Testament theology. There was sort of this nervousness on the part of early Christian theologians to get too specific. With these groups, the church said, hey, we don't have a lot of choice. We got to start trying to define these things, okay? Alright, uh, moving on to the next page. <clears throat> okay. Montanism, uh, this um, became a pretty popular movement. It died out pretty quickly, so it wasn't nearly on the level of, of the size or the um, duration of Gnosticism. But it was an important movement. Okay? Montanism was started by a guy by the name of Montanus. All right? And he said all right, that he was, Jesus was the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He was the incarnation of who? Go down the line, okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? So he said that he was the incarnation of the Holy Spirit in some sense, all right, and therefore everything he said, okay, was the Word of God, all right, on the level of Jesus and Scripture, so on and so forth. He had uh, a couple of prophets, yeah, to to some extent, again. He he was, as is the case with most heretical leaders, he was kind of an equivocator. So you know sometimes when he'd be pressed, he'd kind of back off of that a little bit. But there's definitely in his writings uh where he's asserting there is a sense in which he is the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. And he certainly said that when he spoke in an official capacity, what he was saying was the word of God. Okay? He had a couple of prophetesses um, that also he said uh spoke the word of God. All right. It was sort of kind of the earliest example of an extreme charismatic movement. All right? They heavily emphasized okay, uh, the charismatic gifts, but they took them way too far. And their revelations, their speaking in tongues and interpretations and prophecies and da-da-da-da-da-da, okay, really interpreted the Bible rather than the other way around. Does that make sense? Okay. Even somebody as great as Tertullian, who was one of the earliest church fathers, I'm going to talk about him in a minute, was sort of seduced by this movement and became a Montanist. Now, it's, he became late in life, he became a set in, in a section of the empire where Montanism tended to be a lot more orthodox and not quite as extreme. So again, was he truly saved towards the you know all the way to the end? I would say yes, okay. And he just sort of got a little disgusted with some of what was going on in the Orthodox Church in certain parts. Uh, he felt the church was getting a little too lax. But it is a question, okay, because he did join what was otherwise clearly uh, a heretical uh, group. But certainly before he became a Montanist. Uh, his writings were very helpful, and to this day, um, uh, he is seen as a solid church father. But it's 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 one of those questions, because he did become a montanist uh, towards the end of his life. This movement also helped the, the church to really start grappling with canonical issues, because they these things had been around. Remember I was talking about Perpetua? They had been around for a while. People still believed in visions and dreams and prophecies to some extent. There was... Not a clear line in the sand as to, you know, um, you know, is the Bible all we have as far as special revelation or not? Or if these things still exist today, what level of authority should we give to them? Okay, Montanism really helped the church to say, we don't really need you know, anything past the Bible. And, and, if, and a lot of uh, Christians started to say, they don't believe these gifts are even around anymore. that This is just phony. And to whatever extent Christians did believe these gifts were around, they approached them in a very cautious manner. Always interpret any so-called revelations in light of the scriptures. Does that make sense? And that was, that was a really shift in church history. Before that, it had been a, a little fuzzy, more fuzzy than it should have been. Okay? All right, so um, lat, uh, move on to C. I so wish I could spend so much time on each one of these guys. These guys are awesome, did a lot of really cool things. If you have a chance to read their writings, I really encourage you to do so. I don't have a lot of time to talk about each one of them. Uh, But just the church fathers, there's a lot of church fathers. I'm not listing all of them, but I am listing the major ones, okay, that were sort of the leaders um, in the early church in helping the church understand biblical doctrine better and really fighting against these groups that I've talked about. And of all the groups, who did they fight against the most? Gnosticism, okay, because these were the biggest and the most threatening, okay, to the early church, right? And these uh, church fathers are Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Cyprian. You guys can have a difference of opinion. In my opinion, the greatest of these church fathers, the early church fathers, was Irenaeus, okay? Irenaeus was absolutely relentless, sometimes being a little too harsh, okay, Uh, but relentless in his battle against the Gnostics, okay? Um, and he would he would get kind of sarcastic and a little salty. Okay, I know I kind of made fun of the Gnostics a little bit last week, and I think that there's a place for that. But I mean, he really went after that when they would start having just bizarre names and stuff. He would talk about like you know he'd talk about all these aeons and he'd like name them fruits and stuff. He's like, I think that the name behind the name is cucumber and all these weird things. Okay, <laughs> so he, he, and but but again, it was effective in sort of fighting against this Gnosticism is so intellectual and superior, and and Irenaeus just went after that and was like. What are you talking about? This, just from a purely pagan point of view, this stuff is bizarre. It doesn't make sense. It's out there. It's wacky, okay? Um, And so uh, he did a really uh, great uh, job of that, okay? Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. And any of these church fathers, you've got to be careful with, like I was saying with Perpetua. We're still dealing with the early church era. The, these church fathers don't have the benefit Augustine, Luther, and Calvin, and Bob Inc. and some of the people we have. All right? A lot of them have not plumbed the depths of Scripture because they just hadn't had a chance to do that, all right, yet. And so there's places where Irenaeus is just, I think, off. And then, yes, absolutely, as Kevin says, there's places where he's not off, all right. He's just arguing very much against this, okay, um, and trying to say the physical world is not inherently evil. God created it good. And you can take a lot of stuff that he says out of uh, context. Um, and, real, I mean, I think, I think, I think and you think you would agree with me, Kevin, the Catholic Church constantly does this with the Church Fathers. You know what I mean? They, they just, they love to cherry-pick quotes um, and that's not, that's not a good way to do historical uh, analysis. And if you read better Catholic theologians, they, they will say, hey, yeah, I think so-and-so was just wrong here, okay? I think that he was off, and they'll just say he was just one theologian. That's not how the church does, does theology. We look at it collectively, okay? Um, but yeah, they, absolutely a lot of them will take things badly out of context. Okay, um, okay um, let's go on to the post-Nicene era. The reason we call it pre-Nicene and post-Nicene is because it has to do, okay, with what is known as the Council of Nicaea, which took place in the early 300s. Council of Nicaea, which was a city, okay, in the eastern portion of the Roman Empire, and it led to the Nicene Creed, I'm assuming most, and, and please don't feel bad if you know if you're a new Christian or haven't studied these things. But I'm assuming most of you guys are familiar with the Nicene Creed, yes? Okay. All right. Um, if you're not, I, I highly suggest going and, and reading it when you get home, uh, researching it a little bit more beyond what I say. But very, very important uh, creed. Okay. What took place with the Nicene uh, controversy, okay, was precipitated, okay, by a guy by the name of Arius, okay and what eventually became known as the Aryan controversy. Now, anytime I went over this with my students, okay, those who had watched a few documentaries or history shows, they'd always immediately think when I was talking about, when I would say Aryan, what in America do we usually think of, unfortunately? What's that? Yeah, okay, yeah, sort of white supremacy. Nothing to do with that, like, at all, okay? Two totally different things, all right? So again, don't get those confused, okay? Arian uh, and white supremacy kind of sense is with a Y rather than an I, and that's how you can kind of always tell the two uh, apart, all right? <clears throat> the Arian controversy, okay, was because his name was Arius, all right? He um, uh, was a pastor, okay, in Alexandria. And the bishop at that time, okay, was a guy by the name of Alexander. Makes it easy to remember because he was Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria. All right? <clears throat> what made Arius so much different than any other heretical group before him All right, is he was not just a threat outside of the church. Most of these heretical groups were self-consciously, sort of like Jehovah's Witnesses today, saying, we don't want to be a part of the Orthodox Church. All right. We want you to come to our site. Does that mean we we see ourselves as distinct and different? And that posed a very real threat. Don't get me wrong, because when people would first get saved, okay, it was it was confusing. Do I join the Gnostics? Do I join, okay, uh, uh, you know, the Orthodox Christians? I don't. Do I? I don't know. All right. Uh, And certainly paganism, okay, didn't often know what to make of these two different things. Okay. So again, they caused a threat. But what made Arius qualitatively different than any of the groups that I've talked about to this point is that Arius started within the church, he stayed within the church, and he wanted to his movement to become the church. Does that make sense? Okay. If you remember, I talked about okay, my kind of two circles. Okay? So think of this as kind of the institutional church. And these are groups who claim to be Christian. Okay? And there's you know, different levels. Some are closer than others. All these other ones were sort of outside. Now, obviously, Arianism in its core essence is outside, but think of it as it's trying to infiltrate big time. Most of the other groups were trying to pull people out and say, join our group. Arianism was trying to go in, and he did a very good job of it. I hope that gives you an idea of the difference of severity. All right? um, I would very much compare it to liberal Protestantism in the earliest 20th century. They were not trying to be a separate movement. Okay? They were trying to take over the denominations. They wanted to be the Methodist Church. They wanted to be the Presbyterian Church. They wanted to be the Baptist Church. And unfortunately, they were very successful. Most evangelicals had to leave and start new evangelical uh, denominations. The PCA is an example of that. We are a split off okay, from a denomination that was originally Orthodox that became overrun and taken over by liberal Protestantism. okay. And the same type of thing happened in the early 300s with the Aryan controversy. Okay? What made Arya so appealing? Is that he was really, really orthodox in most areas. All right. He said that I, he said I believe in the Bible from start to finish. I believe that it's the word of God. I believe it doesn't have any mistakes. You could take just about any story, any parable, anything in the Bible, and he would interpret it in a fairly straightforward manner, as did most orthodox Christians. Does that make sense? Okay. So when the Bible says Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said no. It's it's really Jesus praying. All right. Does that make sense? Okay. Where Arius um, uh, went astray, but he was so deceptive in the way that he used language, Okay, is he said that the Son and the Holy Spirit are not truly God. All right? Now, he understood the church's theology. He understood that the church had taught the Trinity in some sense of the word, and that Jesus was God and the Holy Spirit was God, and that they were worshipped as God. But he said, look, that, that's all fine and good, and I think God's okay with that, because he understands we're, we're a young church, we're, we're, we're kind of finding our way. But he said, technically speaking, That's not really true, okay? He said, we can call Jesus God, and here's where the deception gets, okay? Because people a lot of times said, oh, that doesn't sound that much different from what we believe. He said, we can call Jesus God, and we should worship Jesus as God, because in the tradition, we've always worshipped Jesus as God. We can call the Holy Spirit God, and we can worship the Holy Spirit as God, but we need to understand those are honorary titles. Does that make sense? It's sort of like giving somebody an honorary PhD, all right? So you call them what? Someone's given an honorary PhD. You call them doctor. You treat them like a doctor, okay? But technically speaking, have they earned a PhD in the old-school traditional sense of the word? No, okay? And he kind of compared it to like that. He said, Jesus is not truly God, but he's so, he's so darn close, okay? He's the first creation of God, and he's so close to God that it's almost like, you know, we can worship him and the Father's sort of okay with that. Does that make sense to everybody? All right. <clears throat> And so he said, I'm not looking to change the liturgy of the church. I'm not looking to change a lot of the titles we give to Jesus and the Holy Spirit and so forth. But, but I am saying we want to make sure that we do not um, posit anything that resembles polytheism. And remember, by this time, okay, we're talking about you know, 300 years into church history. Okay? 200 years, over 200 years after the apostles. All right. The church has become pretty clear, to whatever extent it was fuzzy because of its sort of remnants of paganism, it's become pretty clear on monotheism. There's only one God, all right? And because of those fights with Gnostics and Marcians, uh, um, the Old Testament now in the church is held in very what? Very high regard. It was sort of seen as a mark of an Orthodox Christian. I love the Old Testament. You Gnostics, you Marcians, go away. We believe in the Old Testament. We might not understand all of it. Some of it might be difficult, but we believe in the Old Testament. And because of that, the church is starting to become fiercely monotheistic. And so Arianism, okay, write this down, really appealed, okay, to a lot of people in the church. They said, this makes a lot more sense, all right? And that's always the appeal when people want to deny the Trinity, like when I talked about my Trinity class, is it's, its um, views that on, on the face of it are simpler they're easier to understand, all right? <clears throat> the ironic thing, as much as Arius was trying to appeal to making the Trinity simpler, all right, Arius was a highly educated guy, very educated guy, very charismatic, and he loved to use flowery language, all right? And so who do you think amongst professing Christians in the church loved him? <clears throat> okay, Gnostics are mostly outside, Okay, okay. That's actually exactly right, okay? The leadership in the church, okay, and the wealthy in the church absolutely adored Arius and thought he was bringing the church to this new respectable state, okay? For the next 100 years, okay, there would be a fierce battle between Orthodox Bible-believing Christians, okay, and Arians, all right? And I want to make this very clear. I'm not... At all, an anti-church guy. I'm not at all an anti-clergy guy. I hope you guys know me well enough for my classes to know that. All right. I be- I believe in the institutional church. I believe in pastors. I believe in elders. I believe in their necessity and their importance. Okay. But during this fight, make no mistake about it. It was the lady that was fighting this fight and really won this fight. And that's a remarkable thing. Okay. And it's something that should inspire all of us. Okay. Because again. I've been a pastor here and there, but most of my, you know, I've I've been getting semi-leadership positions, okay? But I've not ever been in the clergy in a long-term sense, okay? Um, If you ever think, well, I'm just, you know, your average Joe Christian, you know, I mean, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a theologian, I'm not, you know, like on TV or whatever, okay? Many times in church history, all right? You should write this down and take this to the bank. Many times in church history, the church has been saved by an informed lady who was passing on that informed Uh, posture to their children, okay? We saw that with the Aryan controversy. Most of the people who joined Protestantism were what? It wasn't the clergy, okay? They had a lot invested, all right? It was lay... Christians, okay, we are saying, I'm sick and tired of people not teaching me the word of God, all right, and these people are showing me the word of God, they're actually making the case for their position rather than just say, we have the authority, you must obey, all right, it was mostly lay Christians, and was the same thing, okay, in the early 20th century with liberal Protestantism, okay, it was sort of why biblical Christianity in some ways became the fundamentalist movement, which is unfortunate, okay, uh, it became very anti-intellectual, very anti-elite, precisely because it was mostly poor rural people in America saying, You can say whatever you want. You can use all the flowery language you want. You're not going to take scripture from me, okay? The things you're saying, I don't have to have a PhD in theology. I don't have to know everything to know the things you're saying. Do not jive with the word of God. Does that make sense, okay? And it oftentimes drove the elites crazy in every one of those areas that I talked about. How dare you, okay, poor uneducated people think you can tell us clergy, us wealthy elites, what we believe, okay? What does that sound a lot like? Okay, yeah, okay, the Catholic Church, but I mean, going back to Scripture, what does that sound a lot like? Who were who were accused of that a lot? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, exactly, okay? They constantly said that to Jesus and the apostles. Now, I'm not advocating not in for, being educated. I'm not advocating never getting degrees. I have degrees, okay? I, I, there's a place for that, all right? And in almost all of those eras, there was at least a few leaders who were highly educated, okay, who really, okay, sort of led the force. And when when a lot of times lay Christians didn't really know who to go to, they would go to them, okay. In the Reformation, okay, it was guys like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Tyndale, so on and so forth, okay. Uh, In the uh, liberal Protestant era, okay, it was guys like J. Gresham Machen, okay, and, and many other leaders during that period of time. In this period of time, the guy who rose up and was like the champion, all right, was a guy by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius, there we go. And Athanasius is just a flat-out stud. I don't know how else to say it, okay? we were talking about a guy, it didn't matter how much they tried to bring against him, okay, he, he just was going to stick to the truth. You can kill him, you can banish him, you can hurt him, you can threaten him, you can say whatever you want against him, and he was just going to stick to the truth. And the lady revered this guy, probably maybe even a little too much, sort of like how Protestants did with Luther and Calvin and stuff. But they knew the truth from the word of God, and when there was like a really sticky question or an argument, they were like, I don't really know how to answer this, They would write letters to Athanasius and Athanasius would dutifully write letters back or he would literally just travel to a city and he would help them work through these different issues, okay? All right, now, backing up a little bit, Alexander was kind of the first guy to see the danger of Arius, okay? And so he started to appeal to other bishops around the empire. He didn't realize that Arianism is already starting to spread, okay, in the Roman Empire, And eventually, all right, especially in the East, okay, Arianism got so big that some numbers would say by the time you get to the Nicene Council in 325 AD, about half of the professing Christian world okay, was professing to be um, Arian. All right? and, so, and most of them were in, at least churches that on paper were Orthodox, who said we believe in Orthodox uh, doctrine. Okay? So it was becoming a big controversy. Now, backing up a little bit, Constantine is really important. If you look at number 4A, Constantine was the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time that all this goes down. I could spend a ton of time on Constantine, but for time, I won't. Let me just say, he was the emperor of the Roman Empire at this time, and he claimed to have converted to Christianity. There's tons of debate as to whether that uh, conversion was uh, genuine or not. I'm not going to get into that debate right now. But he converted, all right, and he basically said the persecution of Christians not only stops, but now they are going to be a favored religion. He didn't make it, a lot of people you'll see on the internet and say that he made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's not true. That doesn't come until the end of the 300s. But he did say it was going to be a favored religion, and he gave the church money. He built them churches. He oftentimes gave uh, uh, persecuted Christians who had survived, who were mangled and messed up. He gave them medical care, so on and so forth. Okay? How do you think the church reacted to all this? They loved Constantine. They saw him as sort of this kind of Cyrus type uh, uh, figure, only better than Cyrus because he was clearly professing to be a full blown uh, uh, believer, right? Once this controversy boils out, Constantine is furious. He's absolutely furious. He's saying, us pagans, back when I was a pagan, we constantly accused you Christians of being divisive. We couldn't really prove it because you were, didn't seem all that divisive. All right. But we said, if, if we ever let you guys have any power, you guys are going to become divisive. And sure enough, I become emperor. I give you guys all these favors and you guys can't agree on who your savior is. Does this make sense? He thought this controversy was horrible and it gave the pagans a lot of fuel for uh, their fire. And they were after him. All right. How do you think the pagans reacted to Constantine's conversion? Okay, with shock and horror. What has happened? All right. So again, he's super upset at the church, not realizing that Arians are one thing and biblical Christians are something else. But again, to Constantine, it was just splitting hairs. Does that make sense? Alright. So he convened, alright, uh, the Council of Nicaea to sort of deal with this issue. Alexander brought with him Athanasius, and at this, okay, you had these debates, okay? And Athanasius absolutely stole the show. He would debate with Arius, he would debate with the Arian followers, and he just smoked them. He absolutely just smoked them, proving the deity of Christ again and again and again. It got so bad at one point that St. Nicholas, who's a real dude, by the way, obviously he gets... All this other stuff gets added, but he was a real dude, okay. Saint Nicholas got so irritated with uh, uh, Arius because Athanasius was so just proving him wrong, was like, you just need to admit that you're wrong, okay. Saint Nicholas actually went and decked Arius in the face, okay. So tell my students, and they used to love this, to say, so you can go home and tell your parents that Santa Claus decked uh, Arius, okay, in the face, and he did. That's a real story that took place, okay. Um, <clears throat> it was weird tidbits of history, all right. Constant, they took a vote, and because Athanasius was so convincing, even many of the people who were sort of on the fence, they were like, look, I believe Jesus is God, but I'm also really concerned about monotheism, and Arius is making some good points. Arius, I mean, Athanasius basically just put those fears to rest. By the end of the council, there were only two bishops who were still siding with Arius, all right? They took a vote, okay, and it was all the bishops, and there were hundreds of them against three, all right? And Constantine felt pretty good about that. He said, okay, this is the truth. We're good, all right? And so they put together the Nicene Creed. It wasn't the fully developed Nicene Creed, just so you know. But they put together a Nicene Creed and basically condemned uh, Arianism, all right? And Constantine felt like this was good. It's done. We've sort of got this uh, figured out, all right? The problem was, did the Arians go away? No, not by a long shot, okay? The Arians continued to grow. And again, it was primarily amongst Christian nobility, Christian Roman citizens, the wealthy, okay, and the highly educated. That made it very difficult for Constantine to just say, banish all of you, all right? It would have been real societal upheaval for him to do that, okay? So Constantine himself started to equivocate towards the end of his life and said, I still believe in the Nicene, Version of things. I still hold to that. That's what the church's sort of official position is. But we're still going to allow Arians to be in the church, and you sort of can choose which position you want to take. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. And so Arianism was con- allowed to continue to grow. And after Constantine died, you'd sort of have a Nicene emperor, then you'd have an Arian emperor, you'd have a Nicene emperor, and it was, this ca- it was just this chaos. All right. And the Arians and the Christians were going back and forth, and it caused all this divisiveness and problems within uh, 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 Christ's church. And every time an Arian emperor would come onto power, okay, he would banish Athanasius. He'd say, get out of town, you're problematic because you are saying... It wasn't that he held to Nicene truth. That's what a lot of people get confused on. What was Athanasius so firm about that drove Arian emperors nuts? He said, it's not enough to just say as a church that we hold to Nicene doctrine. Okay, we also need to do what? We need to expel the Aryans, all right? We need to engage in church discipline and they need to be excommunicated. This is that serious. And if you refuse to do that, you are not a true church. And that just made the Arians furious. Okay. So he would always be banished, uh, oftentimes sent to just desert, horrible, hot places. Okay. Um R.C. Sproul used to joke about every time he'd be brought back for the, for a Nicene Emperor, he'd just get to work, he'd be um packing his bags, the emperor would get assassinated, and an Arian would come, and oh, he's got to pack his bags and he's off again. Okay? All right. Uh yes, sir, real quick. Is that one of the famous <clears throat> saying Yes, I was just gonna get to that, Mark. Excellent. No, you're good. No, you're good. That's excellent. Okay. Um <clears throat> At one point, okay, the Arians would accuse Athanasius. They say, how can you be so sure that you're right? You know what I mean? What if you're wrong on this issue? What if you're condemning true Christians, okay? And many Arians would actually say to him, what if you were the only Nicene... Christian left. Would you still hold to your position? Are you that stubborn? Are you that arrogant? And Athanasius said, I don't care if I'm the last person on earth worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus I'm going to worship, okay? And that led to the phrase that Mark talked about, okay? Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. Now, he was never truly against the world. There was lots of nice Christians worshiping Jesus and, and put a lot of stock in Athanasius. The point was is he was willing to be against the world. He was willing to stand alone. He did not care if he needed to stand alone. The Bible was the ultimate authority. Nothing else is, okay? Um, and that was actually placed on his gravestone, okay? Athanasius uh, Contra Mundum, all right? And it's a real inspiration that we should be willing to stand alone for the truth, Amen. if need be. And again, what I said earlier, okay? Please don't ever emph- uh, uh, um, underemphasize the power of an informed laity passing on that informed posture to their children. It is a powerful thing. It has saved the church more than once. All right, um, and that is something that sometimes we can forget. All right, it's obviously we want to we want to read and plumb the depths of the best theologians and stuff like that. Okay, uh, but um, we want to not make we want to make sure we don't put in too much emphasis into the so-called you know, leaders of of the church, okay? I remember when I was first saved, and I'll be quick because I don't want to go. I only got a couple, like one more minute. But I remember I I diligently taught my kids um, uh, the word of God from a young age against a lot of odds, okay? Then I'm not going to go into all the details about that right now, but against a lot of odds, it was not an easy thing to do uh, in my context. Um, But I remember I saw it as just one of many Christian duties, I really did, okay, and I remember when I was first saved, I was very zealous, oftentimes new converts, you know, you ever hear people, there's no one more zealous than a convert, I was not raised in a Christian home, and I was very zealous, I wanted to be the next reformer, the next evangelist, and I was going to do all these great things, okay, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that to an extent, okay, but I remember, okay, that was like, I had to do those things, or I felt like I wasn't really serving God, all right, Older I've gotten, and God has certainly used me in a lot of ways, okay, but not nearly to the extent that I had hoped or thought when I was first saved and I was going to, you know, rescue the church from everything under the sun, okay, Um, but now I look at, okay, one of the most important things that I have had the privilege of doing is raising my kids in the Lord, alright, and they don't need to be, I hope, I mean, maybe some of them become pastors or great leaders or whatever, they don't need to become that, okay, um, that is God's primary way of advancing the church, okay, we talk a lot about Billy Graham, who I think is awesome and amazing, and we talk a lot about these different ways that God spreads the gospel, and he does that, don't get me wrong, but God's primary way of spreading the gospel in the word of God and throughout church history has been through godly parents raising up godly children. That's his design. It's not maybe not the most flair way of doing things. It might not be the most sexy way of, of going about things. It might not be the world's way. It might not be what we think is, as, is the best way. But that is God's way. And I just would encourage, okay, all of us as parents to not take that lightly. And if, if you don't have kids or if your kids are grown or whatever, okay, please encourage um, those that are in that position uh, to not take that um, lightly. Okay? All right. Thank you. Uh, yes, Josh, real quick. We've got to go. you said in your prayer last. Amen. Amen. All right, yes, real quick. Never Satan never attacking the church false Yeah, amen. And that's what happened with Arius. It was a And I I'm, I'm very much oversimplifying things in this day and age. Remember you guys that persecution had just stopped and then this, this just horrible division and it was very frustrating and disheartening to the church at the time. Okay? All right, thank you so much you guys. I appreciate it.